Welcome to Insurance Uncovered, the first podcast to bring you insurance news and an inside perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. Insurance Uncovered is produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies and is sponsored this week by VPay, the total payment solution. I'm Kathy Imus, and today we're uncovering the end of an era, the state that's one step away from ending no-fault auto insurance, and mitigation resources, how Congress can help local communities better protect themselves from the impacts of severe climate. Plus, in today's Insurance Unscripted segment, from disruption to evolution, Brian Falchuk shares how insurers can overcome barriers to innovate and evolve. But first, a quick roundup of what's happening in our state legislatures. In Florida, lawmakers passed an overhaul of the state's homeowner insurance regulations on the final day of session. The changes aim to stop rapid increases on insurance premiums and renewal costs. It cracks down on contractors who press customers to make unnecessary repairs and then charge insurance providers. It also looks to reduce attorney fees associated with challenged claims that land in court. Also in Florida, drivers are one step closer to no longer having no-fault auto insurance after lawmakers approved ditching the decades-old system and its requirement of carrying personal injury protection coverage. The bill is currently awaiting the signature of Governor Ron DeSantis. In Maine, NAMIC testified in support of a bill that would provide immunity from civil liability to businesses that have operated within health and safety guidelines during the COVID-19 pandemic. NAMIC Regional Vice President Rory Whelan told lawmakers, quote, approval of this bill would memorialize in statute that Maine will support business investment and job creation by granting legal protections to responsible businesses. In Colorado, the Senate Committee for Business, Labor and Technology held a hearing on a bill that would grant the insurance commissioner massive rulemaking powers over insurer practices. That would include marketing, underwriting, pricing, fraud detection and claims. The commissioner believes these practices are related to unfair discrimination against persons who belong to a protected class. Despite NAMIC's testimony and the insights of other experts, the bill was voted out of committee and now moves to the floor. NAMIC has urged Congress to provide the resources that communities across the country need to better protect themselves from severe climate impacts. In a statement submitted to the House Financial Services Subcommittee on Housing, Community Development and Insurance, NAMIC called on lawmakers to build on earlier efforts to help communities mitigate their vulnerabilities to severe weather by boosting funding for federal mitigation grants and helping communities undertake retrofitting programs to improve resilience. Republican ranking member Steve Stivers said he strongly supports the proposed mitigation efforts. I think it is important that we tackle the issues of making our housing stock as resilient as we can from natural perils. And I think it's really uh, interesting to note that uh, Congress has enacted two five-year reauthorizations of the National Flood Insurance Program since 1994, only two, once in 2004 and once in 2012. There have been short, there have been 16 short-term extensions since 2017. And I hope my colleagues will work in a bipartisan manner to actually um, 
you know, get something done. I know last year we negotiated a bipartisan bill that that uh, came out of this committee, but didn't advance. And so I am hopeful that uh, you'll continue the bipartisan efforts uh, around resiliency. And the big part of that in this committee is the National Flood Insurance Program. NAMIC's statement urged the committee to create incentives for the adoption of modern building codes and to provide the resources for code enforcement. The association further called for an increase in funding for the Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities, or BRIC, program that provides federal grants for state and local mitigation projects and building code enforcement. Well, for more than 100 years, insurers have stood by customers during some of their toughest moments, allowing people to go about their lives and pursue their business ideas without having to worry about the risks involved. Today's customers have different expectations for how they want to do business and be served. On today's Unscripted, our Chuck Chamness talks with Insurance Evolution Partners Brian Falchuk about how technology can pave carriers' paths to success and shed light on how we as an industry can continue to evolve to meet our customers' needs despite disruptions. Joining me today on Insurance Unscripted is Brian Falchuk, He's the managing partner of Insurance Evolution Partners, where he advises carriers on how to navigate an evolving industry facing disruption and change. Brian's also the author of a best-selling book series, The Future of Insurance from Disruption to Evolution, which shares case studies of legacy and startup carriers that overcame the barriers to change we face in the industry to innovate and evolve. So we're excited to talk about uh, these things with Brian today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on, Chuck. Well, it's our pleasure. Brian, let's get to it. Later this month, uh, you'll be working with NAMIC to kick off our insurance or InsureTech Fast Pitch event. And the session will be called How to Overcome the Barriers so You Can Innovate and Evolve. So let's yeah. start with that uh, topic. You know, what do you consider to be the themes of innovation that are providing or that are proving to be most relevant and salient for uh, carriers today? Yeah, so it's um, this is where I think I end up letting people down because they're expecting me to give some like whiz bang specific technology. Right. Like we just go out and buy this, right? Um, and give actually, us the one I, answer. I think it's yeah, yeah right. Um, we love to be reductionist, but I think it's in a sense it's simpler than that, which might make it more complicated because I'm I don't have one answer. But there's two enabling technologies that I think end up creating the the capability or the flexibility for whatever the market's going to throw at us. And obviously we're coming off of a year of the market really throwing things at us. The two things are, are moving more completely to the cloud. If you haven't already been doing that. And the other is APIs and they go hand in hand, but it's about having the flexibility to scale, to respond, to deploy new tools and to do it in a way that's interconnected rather than, you know, we've got 15 disparate systems that don't talk to each other, or we're stuck with these like 12 to 18 month long deep integration efforts, you know, that word integration scares everyone. Um, right. And then of course, if anything changes, it's all broken. The, the world has moved on from that in a, in a technology sense. And this is a great enabler for us to really uh, not just deploy new tools, but try things and experiment and flex and continue to do that dynamically which I think is really what being innovative means going forward. It's not the, the point solution you have right here, right now. It's about your ability to keep fluidly shifting as your customers demand it. 
Well, that sounds hard, um, but necessary, I'm sure. So maybe, you know, as we talk about uh, our members and to our members, um, are there any advantages that mutuals have in, in being innovative uh, around these themes you just mentioned? Yeah, well, I've, you know, I've, I've been really blessed in my career to get to work with a mix of carriers, including several mutuals and, you know, shout out to Ohio Mutual who's in my first book um, for something that they did around text messaging with customers. And, you know, in that experience, I've gotten to see, is there something different here? And, you know, I hear, I hear sort of um, mutuals called out as, you know, maybe they're slower or more behind. And so they're not going to change as, as fast as a, a stock company or a private company. And you know, maybe, but I don't think that generalization holds. I think that might be true with a single or, you know, some specific examples, but it's true on the other side too. I think mutuals actually have a unique advantage here. One is just in that core conception of being a mutual, inherently you have a much closer connection and value. Uh, like it, it's in the core values of every mutual I've come across to really be member focused. And, you know, we use different words in different companies, member, policyholder, insured, what have you. Um, but it, it is in that initial conception of the organization back to its founding and is still alive and well at every mutual I've come across today that you need to be totally centric on what the customer cares about. And that's actually the first and most important lesson in my first book is around really connecting to your customer. So mutuals start with that advantage, which is a really beautiful thing because it's hard to get right. Um, and the other is because you're not public, you don't have to get caught up in this game of quarterly results. And I've seen enough or worked at enough carriers who have that to contend with. Um, it's actually really real uh, where, you know, what you're doing from a dividend standpoint, from a, did you beat last, last quarters or last year's numbers, that almost becomes more important at times, whether you intend for it to or not, than doing the right thing at the right time for the long-term health of the organization and your members. That again is something where mutuals are inherently structurally benefiting uh, or advantaged. And so I think you combine that, that allows mutuals to act faster and be more directly connected to what their customers or members genuinely care about in a way that any other structure can do, but they really have to like purposefully uh, and intentionally change or manage their ability to do that. Whereas with a mutual, it's in your DNA. So I think actually mutuals have a really nice advantage in to me, what is the, the central theme and how to be innovative. Boy, I totally agree. I, I've heard uh, an insurance analyst talk about how the property casualty insurance business is best measured in decades, not years, yeah. and certainly not quarters. And yeah. of course that's looking at the entire results, but when you look at these technology projects, I mean, you really do have to manage for the long term. And I completely agree that yeah. our mutual insurance company members are are best equipped uh, to to manage. I mean, they often say they manage for the benefit of the policyholder, of the agents, and of the uh, employees, the people who work for the company. Yeah. When you have that kind of a solid foundation that allows you to look long term at what's best for all those groups, particularly the policyholders for whom the company is yeah. uh, run, um, it gives you the proper focus for big and 
sometimes, you know, franchise uh, stakes when it comes to these technology uh, projects. Yeah. So well, everyone's everyone's incentives are aligned, and right. you know, it's not that people are trying to do the wrong thing or trying to make short term or or you know decisions for for someone who isn't like the core of why they exist, but people are people. And when you incent them a certain way, whether they mean to or not, their behaviors tend towards the thing you incented them on. In a mutual structure, the incentives are perfectly aligned with exactly this long-term intention, which is actually how you survive in this industry and thrive. So how, what are the factors that help a company get it right? We've all heard the stories of, you know, disastrous system implementations and huge amounts of money being spent for something that yeah. uh, had to stop or didn't work once it was tested. What what kinds of uh, factors make you more likely to succeed if you're an insurance company yeah. that's contemplating this? Well, you know, when, when I mentioned the APIs in the cloud and you said, you know, that, that sounds hard, it may be, it may sound very hard from, you know, where you're at today. The reason why I see that as such an enabler is as an industry, our history has been in these big bang kind of approaches. And, you know, we've delivered things through waterfall. So it's, you know, the tech team goes away for so many months and then drops something and hopefully it, it works. Um, and there's a move towards using an agile methodology where you're releasing more regularly, you're building things on uh, more recently defined scope and needs rather than something we defined when the project started eight years ago, which, you know, who knows if that's still relevant. Um, but the problem is we're generally still often building really big things. And so the joke I always make is you're in year eight of your three year core system project. Right. And people are like, did you, did you just, well, that's not a joke. That's reality. I've heard those. <laughs> no, stories. that's real. Yeah. And that, like you shouldn't have multiple CIOs or COOs or whatever. Uh, over the life of a project. That, that is a sign that it's taking too long and that's probably why they're multiple. Um, the thing about moving to the cloud and to using APIs is that flexibility allows you to break this cycle of the big bang where it's, you know, we spent $120 million in seven years of our, our business on getting this thing in. We can't change now. We can't, you know, and we're looking at the upgrades and that's gonna be a two year project. So we're just gonna hold for it. Like that is not a survival approach. If you can get to a place where your system can talk through APIs, now what you can start to do is deploy the right tool for the right problem in the right place, excuse me, in the right place. And it's, um, it's much more manageable. So instead of being a scary thing is once you have that capability, you know, when you're looking at, well, you know, in the past year, we needed to do more remote adjusting or we need to pay digitally because we can't have people coming into the office to sign checks and mail them out and what have you. Those may be huge endeavors to deploy, but if your systems can use APIs, you can tap into much more lightweight tools that you can get into customers' hands relatively quickly. Um, you know, honestly, API integrations are measured in, in weeks, not months or years. So you could, four to six weeks from now, actually have a solution for some of these things. And the reality is, I think as hard as the past year, 18 months have been, most of us got a really early reminder in our ability to move much faster than we thought we could in deploying remote workforces, right? All of a sudden sure. things, I knew carriers who were like, we're looking at this 18 months out and it's going to be a year long effort. And then the pandemic hits and they get locked down and they're two days later, 90% of their staff are all remote. Well, wait, I thought it was going to be a 12 month effort. 
that you can start for six more months. So we figured out how to do things faster. I think this is, this is the norm, is looking for the best point solution that we can knit together rather than waiting for, you know, I heard a carrier say, well, we're just going to work, we're waiting for Guidewire to either buy or build all of these little things, and then we'll implement them. Hmm. Well, A, that may never happen, and B, if it does, that may be two decades from now or whatever. You can't just sit back and wait. So you need to be more flexible. You need to have the ability from a vendor management side to work with multiple smaller contracts and deploy these things in a flexible way using APIs which is, that is really what technology has moved to, not just in insurance. And that to me is the way we can start to, you know, I said that dynamic fluid change, that's how you enable it. Um, so the, the tools are there now, which is really exciting. It's for us to maybe be a bit inspired and recognize, you know, remembering what we did with remote work, we actually can do this stuff. So why don't we try? Yeah, that is a, a very important lesson, probably maybe the most important lesson that I think all of us learned, um, you know, with the advent of the pandemic. Um, yeah. Last question, and uh, this maybe takes a step back at this space that we call InsureTech. You know, I remember maybe 10 years ago, uh, was at an earlier stage, and there was a lot of talk about industry disruption and uh, how, you know, our uh, member companies, carriers could be replaced. It seemed unlikely to occur uh, at the time, I thought, just because it's an industry that relies on, uh, you know, capital, clearly, first and foremost, and uh, second, regulation. I mean, there's a lot of regulation yeah. in the industry. It's there for a reason uh, to protect, you know, the pledge that companies make and the policyholders uh, uh, that they get the delivery on the on the policy that they that they've been promised. But what what where are we in on the insure tech space today? Uh, it seems like it's um, evolved into a much more, um, you know, complementary role with respect to the industry. But yeah. uh, maybe a little yeah. bit on that. Yes. Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's a, you know, insure tech is a broad term that that can mean enabling technology. It can mean um, new ways of buying and selling. So maybe it's a, you know, an online aggregator or a trading platform or an enabler of ways that we buy and sell today. You know, something that our agents or brokers are using, um, or it could mean a startup insure tech carrier or insurer, and I'm, maybe I'll use the term insurer to encapsulate both carriers and MGAs, because the reality is a lot of these startup carriers that we see are not carriers or MGAs. Right. And between that and the amount of capital that has come out of the woodwork, especially on the back of some of the, the public offerings and exits that happened over the past 12 or so months, um, that capital point that you raised as, as one of the two main moats I think is is largely being solved. Um, there is, it's not it's not easy, but it's also not necessarily hard to get capital, whether that's funding for your company or capital in the sense of capacity. You know, reinsurer and front-end carrier to stand by you. Um, but we certainly see a lot of capital coming in to support the statutory side for these MGAs to transition into insurers and you know, being full-stack carriers once they've proven their model as an MGA. And that, that seems like the progression. You know, a lot of them may even start as an agent or a broker, transition to an MGA with their own product. And then once that's proven out, they then start building up their capital or get an investment to actually build their own carrier. Um, I don't think this is a, the insure techs eat the legacy carriers and stop existing kind of situation. But by the same token, I also don't think it's, these guys are a flash in the pan. They're not going to exist five years from now. You know, their business isn't sustainable. So let's just ignore it. Um, 
I think actually there's a ton to learn on either side. I don't think those insure techs should be looking at existing carriers and calling them dinosaurs and laughing them off. And I don't think you know the legacy side should be doing the same thing for the startups. There's a lot to learn on both sides. It is a very complex business. Um, you see some who crack the regulatory and the capital side, but then they can't make the acquisition costs work because it's really hard. And you know, you see a lot of the startups are direct and they, they tout that and you know, we're gonna our economics would be so much better. It's not like a getting customers direct is free. It's really expensive. And so then you see them start to work with agents. Um, that's the point. I think hubris is actually what would do damage on either side. And we need to be accepting of that. And that's why you see a lot of the partnerships that are going on where some of these newer carriers, uh, you know, maybe they have a specific product offering that complements a legacy carrier's offering really nicely. And so that legacy player is now a partner in a distribution channel and not just, oh, you know, these old guys, we're going to put them out of business. So I think we had some of that. We had some of the hubris and the big announcements. And so the reality is that's not what played out. Um, you know, I always say Lemonade's not going to put State Farm out of business and vice versa. If either of them goes away, I'm sure it's not because of the other one. Uh, and, and frankly, I don't think, I certainly don't think State Farm's going anywhere, uh, but not at Lemonade's hands. Um, I think this is a story of partnership and learning from, and that's, that's kind of the message I try to bring in my book is I think there's so much this industry can do. Uh, you know, we have a very noble cause. We're there for people at the worst moments of their lives putting those pieces back together, taking the risk of those moments away so people can pursue their dreams and live. Um, that's really important. So what can we do together? Uh, and, and I think there's a lot of that really starting to brew today. Boy, that's a great uh, great message to end on. Brian Falchuk, uh, thank you for your time today on Insurance Unscripted and uh, look forward to reading your book and seeing you on the InsureTech Fast Pitch we hold later this month. That's great, thanks so much, Chuck. Thank you. And that's a wrap for us on Insurance Uncovered today. Thank you to VPay, the total payment solution, for sponsoring this episode. We'll be back again on May 19th with more insurance news and interviews. Until then, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a great day.